Hello, welcome to the Funds Fanatic weekly podcast in which uh, my, myself, Gavin Lumsden, and usually Dan Grote, my colleague, uh, talk about funds and investment trust. But Dan's on holiday this week, so I'm delighted to say I'm joined by uh, another of our guests, uh, Marcus Fair Mudge, who's the fund manager of TR Property uh, Investment Trust uh, and a series of uh, other open-ended funds uh, at BMO uh, Global Asset Management. But uh, TR Property is what we're going to focus on today. Uh, the Investment Trust had its full year results. And Marcus, they, they showed that uh, the trust was having a great time. Like many investment funds, uh, the trust was having a great time until February. And then because of COVID-19 and coronavirus, things really fell off a cliff and the net asset value ended up being down about 11.5% over the year. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about that, but I'd just like to start with your, uh, your, your, your outlook comments in the results uh, regarding COVID-19, because you know, clearly that's the, what we're in the midst of at the moment. So um, you, you refer to us being in the second phase of the COVID-19 dilemma. What, what do you mean by that? Um, well, Gavin, thank you very much uh, for, for, for having me on and delighted to um, talk about the trust and the, and the pan-European um, real estate market, commercial property market, um, and residential indeed. Um, the, the second phase was very much uh, our reference to the fact that the, for us, the first phase was the equity market's very dramatic um, response, uh, basically from the middle of, uh, middle of February to the, to the middle of March. And then after that, we saw quite a sustained recovery from the low point of the 18th of March. And now we've moved into what we consider to be phase two, which is this sort of corrugated response, i.e. the market moving up and down in, a, in a quite a wide band, lots of volatility as uh, market participants and investors work out you know, who are the winners and losers uh, in our particular world and how, you know, how valuation um, and cash flow uh, is going to look going forward for our very um, broad uh, um, range of, uh, of commercial and residential real estate companies. You know, lots of companies doing different things, and I'm sure we'll get into a bit more detail about that. But really, from our point of view, the second phase is that is uh, while you know it encompasses the um, company uh, uh, society reopening. Um, as we need to get our economies back and functioning to make sure that alongside the, um, you know, the, the, the tragic um, health consequences, we don't end up with, um, with you know, similar economic ill health or try to minimise that. Um, and of course, different countries, and we're invested across the whole of Europe, different countries are doing it in different ways with different levels of success. Um, so we can, we can talk about that as well. Yeah, so, the, so Marcus, this, this week we've you talk you talk about the fact that the restrictions around lockdown are being eased uh, here and, and elsewhere, and and stock markets have been until today have been rallying uh, quite quite strongly on, on the back of that. But I'm just wondering, you 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 join us, you, you're joining us from uh, from Dorset, I think, and uh, uh, I'm I'm sitting here in my house in North London. I just wonder if you could just talk to us about uh, you know as you're assessing the implications of, of of the crisis. You know, we're working from a home. Uh, every Everybody's working from home if they can. Um, what is the impact going to be on, on the office sector uh, if lots of people decide actually flexible working, working from home is a thing they want to do more of? Yeah, the, sh the short term impact is that we think that quite a lot of small and medium sized businesses 
will quite quickly, where they can, particularly where they have short occupational leases, they're, maybe they're in serviced offices, etc., they will indeed shrink their, um, their occupation and can consolidate to an extent. So we see a, a quite a serious impact in the very short run uh, in, those, um, in some of those types of, uh, of landlords. Um, I think looking broader, you know, more longer term into sort of the next sort of few years, we actually think you've got two diametrically opposed situations here. One is that we will see an increase in the working from home. Therefore, it begs the question, do we need all this office space? However, we will also, while, you know, before a, uh, a vaccine is, um, is developed, we'll be in a situation where we will be maintaining much greater uh, social distancing and basically much lower density of desks uh, in, uh, in office buildings. So expensive markets like London offices, but also I would include Paris, New York, et cetera, Hong Kong. You know, we've been driving, companies have been driving down their costs uh, of occupation by basically squishing more of us into a smaller amount of space. But they've been able to do that because primarily over the last 20 years, we've seen very big improvements in air handling and air conditioning. So it hasn't felt like you've been particularly squished. Um, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been fine. And actually we got down to about eight square meters uh, per person. So that's sort of 80 square feet, which is quite small. Now that is obviously going to reverse significantly. So I think what we're going to see is actually the cost of real estate is gonna go up for these companies because although we're going to be working from home more, we're also going to need to go to the office. We're going to need to have um, that interaction and dialogue, and we'll want to have that interaction and dialogue with our colleagues, um, and maybe it just won't be five days a week, but you will find yourself getting used to being in a, a much less densely populated um, office building because we won't all be there together at the same time. So we see that we're not believers in the end of the office. Not the end of the office. So will there be an opportunity in revamping and refurbing offices? Will there have to be lots of uh, work to make them work within social distancing rules? Yeah, absolutely. Already there are companies that are, you know, those businesses that are making the Perspex screens, etc., are, are, are busier than ever. I think um, for refurbishment of, of older premises, yeah, it, it is going to be more costly. Um, and there are, you know, rents will need to compensate. Otherwise, uh, developers won't actually do the, you know, go, go on risk doing the work. And this moves into a very important point. Of course, at the end of the day, property is like everything else. It's just a function of supply and demand. And if you choke off the supply, as in no developers are prepared to build buildings or refurbish buildings unless they've got the tenants in place, then we will see quite a dramatic supply response, i.e. the supply will, will, will restrict. And actually, prior to COVID, that was very much a situation we found in lots of cities um, uh, across Europe, whereby there just wasn't a huge amount of supply and, and rents were rising and, and there wasn't the supply because actually over the last decade since the, the, the GFC, you know, banks and other lenders have been very reluctant to lend money speculatively. It's one of the great underpins for performance of uh, commercial and to an extent residential property was this lack of supply. So we think actually that, that, that we'll have you know, that, that, that feature of the market will remain with us. So even though in cities like London, we seem to see cranes all over the place, but in fact, there hasn't been enough construction. You, you remarked that the London office uh, market was uh, surprisingly resilient. 
last year. And I think, are you in the results predicting a, a vacancy of around 6% in the office market this year? Yes, we think vacancy in the West End is, is currently at record lows. It's down in the mid, you know, threes to fours. And we think that will increase to six to seven. But bear in mind that equilibrium, so rents don't really start falling dramatically until you really get above that seven or eight percent vacancy. Um, and for us, we're really differentiating between high quality offices uh, and, and secondary or tertiary. The point about, you know, for corporates for many years now, or certainly in the, in the last decade, worked really hard to improve the working environment, um, particularly for sectors of the business, particularly the, the, the tech side of, of, uh, of demand, where you know, companies have been fighting to retain staff, attract the best, staff, best quality staff, and the working environment's been really, really important to that. So cycle spaces, showers, breakout areas, all of this has got, you know, as well as the air handling, natural light, etc. And we think the, the, best, the best space will retain its value. Okay. Can we, uh, thanks for that. Let's move on to another big aspect of, uh, of our current reality. Obviously, it's a, a lot more of us are doing a lot more online shopping. So, uh, and that's increasing the pressure on, on retailers, but uh, creating um, a lot of demand uh, for, for, for supermarkets. So how's that uh, influencing the way you're investing in, in the sector? Yeah, so we've been very bearish about uh, non-food retail for a long time. In fact, the trusts, the trusts only exposure to UK, uh, direct UK retail uh, has been through supermarket income REIT, um, which we actually own about 10% in the trust. We own about 10% of, of that company. Um, and that has obviously been, been very successful. I'm afraid the, the structural shift to online um, and the advancements in, in home delivery and next day delivery have really been a, meant that ordinary retail and particularly shopping centres have been in a very poor place for a long time. And we believe that COVID is just actually going to accelerate that. Now, the big difference has been between the UK and Europe. Uh, in the UK, for historic reasons, we have uh, much higher property taxes rates, which have impacted shopping centres very, very badly. Um, and rents have just been significantly higher for a long period of time. Much of the continent, uh, rents have been lower. What we call the occupancy cost ratio has been lower. And also, uh, online shopping has, has just not really been a factor. I mean, to give you two statistics, in the UK, uh, X food and fuel, we're up to about 22% of all uh, retail is now online. The same figure for Italy uh, is 2%. Um, really, the Italians have yet to discover uh, the joys of online um, and in fact for huge swathes of that particular country they've, they've the, 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 the crisis um, of the pandemic has really introduced them to, to, to home delivery and we think this is something that will continue to you know evolve for for them and for much of Europe so we see the online challenge just accelerating um, and that of course is a bonus for logistics uh, developers and logistics companies the other side of the of the retail coin and we've had um, uh, we still continue to have and have had for several years lots of exposure um, to to logistics players both in the UK and across Europe, but particularly developers uh, as opposed to the, you know the Tritax big box sort of uh, 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 investors of, of uh, in that field. Right. So you you prefer to buy the companies actually building the uh, last mile distribution depots rather than those who actually own them and are collecting the rent. 
Yeah, well, but, but yes, a bit of both, really. But, but we definitely like those that are, because the developer, particularly in a rising market like logistics, they've, they buy the land well. You get a value, a value gain on the land they bought when they've got planning and they put in the infrastructure. Then, because the market is, is, is hot in many of these countries, they're successfully um, building buildings and renting them for better than expected rents. And then the yields have compressed because there's lots of investors out there who want to own the finished product. So by buying the developer, you're actually exposing yourself to, to a developer investor rather than just a pure investor. You're getting um, you know, two bites at the cherry. And that's what Tritax obviously done uh, last year by buying DB Symmetry. But across Europe, we have half a dozen names that are all in, listed in the annual report, which were obviously was published today for, this, for the year to March uh, 2020. Um, and, and investors are welcome to, to look at businesses like Argon, Warehouses, Depau, Montea, all, all great, great businesses uh, you know, doing, working in this logistics field. Okay, that's uh, interesting. Let's just go back to uh, the supermarket. Uh, uh, supermarket income you mentioned, that's a big holding for you, obviously. Uh, they did uh, an interesting deal uh, this week, a joint venture, um, whose details are now escaping me, but presumably you, you know what I'm talking about. What, what a supermarket income announced this week? Absolutely, it's a very interesting deal. So first of all, about a month ago, they raised 140 million for uh, further investment. And they've just invested 50 million um, in this joint venture with the British Airways Pension Fund, um, and along with uh, Aviva and Sainsbury's. Now, it's quite complicated and unusual because this is a portfolio of Sainsbury's supermarkets that actually have only have three years left on their lease. Um, but they actually account for about 7% of all Sainsbury's um, sales go through these, uh, this collection, this portfolio of, of, uh, of super, standalone supermarkets. So supermarket income REITs are confident um, that Sainsbury's will want to renew these leases um, that expire in three years. And it's a it's a clever deal because we believe that, and Sainsbury's are obviously part of the ownership of, of, these, of these supermarkets. So we're confident that at least with some, if not all, they will renew those leases um, on terms that are advantageous to both parties. So it's a, uh, um, it's a, it's a clever transaction. Oh yeah, uh, that sounds it. And also um, the, the uh, fund manager of Supermarket Income has got uh, Justin King, the former Sainsbury's boss on board as, a, as an advisor, non-executive, isn't that right? So uh, presumably they, they've got they, a good idea, good, very good idea what's going on at Sainsbury's. They absolutely have. It's a, a real coup for, um, um, for Steve and Ben to get Justin on board. What's interesting about Steve and Ben is that neither of them are property folk by, by sort of upbringing. They both were involved for many years in um, the CERN leasebacks. And what happened when Sainsbury's and Tesco's um, obviously finished this, this, what was known as the space race of the 19, sort of, sort of from the mid 90s to the mid, the, the mid 10s, um, you saw the, both these companies expanding their footprint hugely. Now in order to do that, they'd buy the land, build the supermarket, and then they'd do what was called a CERN leaseback. They'd, they'd put a lease over that building and then sell it to an investor, get the load more money in, and then repeat the process, you know, rinse and repeat. And uh, Steve and Ben were heavily involved in, uh, in these uh, leasebacks. So they have this very deep knowledge um, uh, of, you know, of the performance of these supermarkets, you know, which ones are got the best sales rates, which ones are working well, and very importantly, which ones are 
the successful part of the integration of the online network for these big supermarkets. You know, for some years, people thought, oh no, it's all gonna go online and the supermarkets will suffer. But in the US, we saw Amazon you know, give up on Amazon Fresh and go and buy a business called Whole Foods. So very much seeing that really, the thing about online delivery for food is you really have to use your existing supermarket network to do it. It's not like a hard goods, you know, um, you know, televisions or bicycles or whatever, which can sit in a big warehouse in the middle of nowhere for months on end. Of course, food can't. It has to be, you know, it's all perishable. And therefore, the fact is, the, the, the existing supermarket network, not all supermarkets, but what we call class the winners, um, will be those that are part of the online distribution um, for, uh, for these big retailers. So when, okay. you go to your, when you go to your big supermarket, you want to check out, you know, are there lots of little vans uh, parked around the side? Because that means it's part of a Sainsbury's or Tesco or Morrison's or Waitrose. It's, it'll be part of their online. And we think those sort of supermarkets are here to stay. OK, well, while you're talking about this, I've got another question, not, uh, not about supermarkets, but about uh, you know, you're talking about uh, high street retail and shopping centres. Clearly, you know, big, big issues there that you, you, you've mentioned earlier. But I, I want to ask you about uh, retail parks, because they've also been under a cloud. And um, but the argument for those funds and those people investing in them is that, they, as you were saying with the supermarkets now, they can play a role in uh, you know, both physical shopping and in sort of uh, collection points, click and collect uh, for, for internet shopping as well. Uh, and yet the, the, the prices of those funds investing in them uh, and they're, uh, have, have fallen a lot. There seems to be um, a lot of caution about that subsector. Why is that? Yeah, that's a great question. The, 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 the answer is there's just too much supply. Um, and there aren't enough tenants uh, going forward to fill all the, all the out-of-town retail warehousing, as we call it, space that's been developed. I absolutely agree. They, are, they make very good, you know, often edge of town, lots of parking, and particularly in a COVID environment where, you know, lots of space. You know, they, they do are clearly an opportunity for click and collect uh, rest there. The question, of course, is just what are the retailers prepared to pay for this space? And what we are in the throes of is just a recalibration of pricing. You know, the rents are going to go down, um, the yields will expand, and you'll get a new, effectively a new capital value. Um, and that's what we saw with, you know, Hammerson were due to sell uh, a large portfolio to Orion, uh, and Orion pulled out of the transaction and get, gave up their £21 million deposit, which means they must be feeling you know, very nervous about, about the future. And I would agree that, that, that that's with, you know, with their decision in some respects, it was sillier than to get involved in the first place. But, but it's, um, there is, there is a, a home for a lot of this or, or a purpose for a lot of this retail warehousing. It's just what price can the occupier pay? Okay. Um, moving on again, um, student property has been a, a, a key area for people investing in what are kind of property alternatives, a good source of, uh, of rental income there. But again, obviously, uh, with the disruption to uh, university life, the university academic year from, uh, from the coronavirus, um, the share prices have fallen heavily. Uh, in your results, you seem uh, they're quite optimistic there'll be a quick rebound when the universities reopen. But I just wonder, you know, is, really? I want to test your conviction on that, just because, you know, the numbers of overseas students coming back uh, is going to be down sharply, and perhaps even UK students won't be so keen to go to university, uh, given that the universities are going to be 
you know, having to try out new ways of teaching online and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think there are three factors here. The first is the, the fundamental one is that the purpose-built student accommodation, so not a, you know, the polar opposite of the, of the terraced house that you and I lived in in uh, university. So these are purpose-built, their Wi-Fi is superb, security, et cetera. It's students want to live in these places rather than renting off you know, a dodgy landlord. And um, that's the first point. The second is that when we look at what each subsector's response will be in a post-COVID environment, um, if you were to look at hotels, the answer is even if hotels are allowed to open, the recovery is going to be gradual because there are, you know, how much, you know, the speed at which business comes back, the speed at which tourism comes back. You, it, it's a, it's at best a, a sloping recovery, like a sort of, uh, like a sort of Nike swish is our, 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 our view of recovery. In the case of student accommodation, it's a V-shaped recovery. If these universities are able to open and students wish to return, I'll come back to your other point, then we will see them fill up quickly again. Now, the two mitigating, negative mitigating factors you've already raised. The first is, well, how many of us will want to go back uh, if the very large lectures are, are online um, and only tutorials and smaller groups are face-to-face? -face? And the fact of the matter is, if that is what is on offer for the entire tertiary education community um, across, across Europe, then that's what they will be. And, and if students say, well, I don't want to do that, I'm going to give up going to university and I'm going to throw my hat into the, uh, uh, in, into the employment market, even though I'm less qualified and uh, we're in a recession. We think that's not going to be the case. They will accept what, what, you know, the, these restrictions and get on with it and go back to university. Um, as far as foreign students are concerned, you're absolutely right. This is a concern. And when you look at the share price of United, it was at 13 pounds. Um, it, it, it's now at £8.60 um, and we think that's reflecting concerns about when universities are going to open but also that absolutely you're, you know, there will be an awful lot of students who aren't uh, able to come you're able to get back to, uh, to the UK but we don't think that's going to be a permanent situation and there is a huge huge number of students uh, across Asia and other parts of the world who want to come and study in, uh, in, in Europe, uh, in the UK, and actually in the US. And that, this is a very important point. The, the US is not open to them. The, the Trump administration does not, you know, is not being helpful um, for, uh, to, to increase the number of, of Asian students. Um, whereas we are, you know, have been opening, uh, welcoming with open arms, which is absolutely great. You know, tertiary, education is, is a major part of, uh, of our export uh, um, uh, world and that's you know we think that it, it will come back. Okay well that, uh, thanks for um, your response uh, to my scepticism there that's uh, that is uh, that is useful uh, information. Um, we've, we've gone through a variety of, of sectors and that's that's great but now more broadly uh, you know where, where are you looking for uh, safe resilient income you know our, our viewers the, the people are going to be watching or listening rather to this uh, you know, a lot of them are income investors and they've seen you know, their equity income funds and trusts have uh, have suffered very badly dividends being cut right left and center as you know um, you know TR property in your results today you've actually although the, the portfolio has been hit by the recent declines you uh, increased full year dividends by 3.7% uh, you, you paid 14p or are pay, 
paying 14p per share, and that's covered by earnings. So all that's quite sort of positive, but uh, the outlook is, uh, is tough, is it not? No, Gavin, absolutely, the, the outlook is tough. But what we have done is, is and, and this has been going on for some time now, we've been positioning the, the, the portfolio uh, into, what, into what we call income resilience. And four areas, some of which we've discussed, uh, uh, would, be, would be, we've talked about logistics, industrial, um, uh, student accommodation obviously is a concern in the short run. Healthcare is a major part of our universe now. Um, and then you can buy that both in the UK through uh, Assura, Target Healthcare, uh, Primary Health Properties, and then in Europe through Cofinimo, through ECAD, um, Idifica, etc. So these have been, you know, healthcare, particularly something you know, Assura and Primary Health Properties, you've effectively got NHS backed income. I mean, this is really, really solid, and we've seen very high collection rates. Supermarket income REIT is paying you over 5%. We've talked about that. But a really, really big part of our world and a, and, and a big part of TR property uh, is the private, private residential sector. So this isn't buy to let in a kind of mum and dad basis. This is, this is institutional, um, huge numbers of flats, particularly in Germany, uh, um, Sweden and Finland. And what's so interesting about Germany and Sweden is that rents are regulated. So they are index linked um, but are well below open market. As a consequence, you have virtually 100% uh, um, occupancy. So we, and, and you can buy, we buy uh, exposure to companies like Venovia, uh, LEG, um, uh, Deutsche Wohnen, Phoenix Free, and then in, in, in Finland, uh, Koyamo, um, Sweden for Balda. If you look at the share prices of these businesses, um, they're, in some cases, they're back uh, to their pre-COVID highs. And this is just because this income is incredibly secure. Um, and I think so for the, for the board of TR Property, they could see, they look forward into what's happening next year. And of course, there are, you will have received no rent from our, our modest um, exposure to European shopping centers uh, in the short run. Um, some of our office names have clearly uh, cut their dividends temporarily. Um, but we have this huge cohort uh, of, of those who will still pay. So our income is likely to be down next year relative to, to the year just gone. But we do have uh, over one year of, uh, of full uh, revenue reserves. So the board are very much taking the view they want to pay out what we've earned um, uh, for the year to 2020, uh, March 2020. And then, you know, we know what we're looking at going forward. Um, and, you know, if we have to cover a shortfall for one year, I'm sure the board will be, you know, looking at that as, as, as something that they can do. But it's, I think it's a very important and strong message um, that they have increased the dividends for the year to March 2020. Yeah, OK. I was going to ask you about revenue reserves. So thanks very much uh, for that. You, you've answered that. So that revenue reserves are something that investment trusts, closed end funds can do, whereas open ended funds can't because they've got to distribute uh, all, all their income. Um, talking about the difference between investment trusts and open ended funds, obviously, a lot of your, a lot of the open ended funds, all of the open ended funds in the UK are suspended at the moment. Um, have you seen any uh, or noticed any sort of forced selling of uh, properties by uh, open ended fund managers? It's interesting that in obviously, whilst they are uh, under the current level of, of, of suspension, the current rate um, um, suspended situation, no, we haven't. However, prior to that, um, a lot of them were suspended after the referendum decision in 2016. And we did see quite a lot of selling 
the problem for these funds is they were therefore selling what they could sell, what we in the property industry call dealing off the top of the pack. So you saw them sell prime city offices, uh, supermarkets, industrial estates, etc. What they didn't sell was their retail property. So there, a lot of them are effectively gone into this current cycle of, of, of being um, uh, locked, uh, uh, unable to, to subscribe or redeem but they've still got an awful lot of retail property that when they come out of it, that will get marked down uh, again. For, for TR props, uh, uh, one of our things being closed-ended, when you compare us with open-ended equity funds, is we have this wonderful situation where we're able to buy positions in small companies. And therefore what we have seen is, particularly in the dark days of, of, of uh, the last couple of weeks of March, the opportunity to increase exposure to some of our favorite small cap companies at very uh, at very discounted prices what now, sort of companies what sort of companies are we talking about marcus um we've bought uh in it, well it, there's a there's a there's a group of them and i think it'd be uh, i i'm not sure i want at this stage to go in name names because some of the positions we've taken are are reasonably material so I'm afraid it's probably sensitive. Uh, okay. In, in all honesty, but ones that well, I'll, I'll look out. I'll look out for the stock exchange announcements of the RNS on that. But it, what you're saying is though you're using the advantage, the resilience of the investment trust structure because you're not a for, because you don't have money flowing in and out of the fund. Uh, therefore, you're not forced to sell things when people are pulling money out. When people sell an investment trust shares, the price gets hit, but you still got the capital to uh, to, to 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 play with. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. And we've we've held small companies. Uh, we have about. 15, 20% of the portfolio in these small companies, which are all across Europe. And when you look back at the, the history of the trust, and I've been running it now for, I've been involved for 20, over 20 years with TR Props and been running the fund for, for, for going out for 10. Um, we've had great success with these smaller companies because they tend to either get bigger through merger um, or they are successful businesses, they raise capital in the market, or if they're standing at big discounts to asset value, they get taken private because one of the great joys of the real estate equity market is there's more commercial property is owned privately than publicly. And these companies will, if they trade at big discounts to asset value, private money will come in and take them out. Um, yeah, so and we saw and we saw a couple of deals last year, didn't we? Green Real Estate Investment Trust, uh, AJ Mucklow uh, were both taken out. Are you, expect, are you expecting more deals like that, more mergers and acquisitions? after the stock market crash? Absolutely. I mean, the case of Green, what we look for, Green was absolutely classic, where management owned nearly 15% of the company. They were not going to sit there and see their personal wealth try, trade significantly below asset value. They, they, their shares traded around the 140 to 160 euro, one spot four, spot six, and they sold, they sold the business uh, at 194, one spot nine, four euros. So they you know, they absolutely knew what they were doing. And so we like look to back management. Uh, we like companies that have, you know, strong family ownership. Argon, our French logistics business, um, is 50% owned by the Lalonde family. Um, great. You know, you, you, you are backing smart people who've got their own money, their own skin in the game. And that's absolutely crucial. The case of Mucklow. Okay. Rupert Mucklow wanted to retire. And the merger with LMP was, was, was brilliant and it's been proved, proved so. 
Okay, last question, uh, Marcus. I mean, you, you say you've been involved uh, in, in the sector and involved with the investment trust for, for, for two decades now. So you've, you, you've, you've seen a lot in that time. Um, how are you feeling about uh, the asset class, the real estate sector? Uh, you sound quite upbeat and quite engaged. What, what is your mood, uh, given the yeah. challenges ahead? The, the answer is you've got to pick your, pick your runners uh, and, and riders very carefully. I'm afraid, don't you know, no point swimming against the tide. We've got some retail businesses that look incredibly cheap. They're having wonderful sort of, um, uh, you know, fair rallies at the moment. Um, uh, and you guys will know which ones those are. Um, we, we think they've got huge fundamental problems going forward. On the other hand, plenty of other sectors where we can make money. Um, we haven't talked about some of our Scandinavian investments. We've got a brilliant little supermarket um, uh, investor owner called Cebus uh, in, in, in Finland, um, Sweden. Um, we've got a, a very nice uh, developer, office developer in Madrid called Arima, um, which is trading well below book, um, got lots of cash, very established management, been around uh, the track several times. So for us, it's quite, uh, it's quite exciting if you can get into the right areas. But fundamentally, what we do see uh, is that this huge amount of, of, of state uh, and central government um, uh, capital largesse is going to lead to very, very low interest rates for a very long time. And uh, investors are going to need income. And, and of course, way back in the sort of distant past, uh, the, you know, the ugly word inflation could also raise its head um, uh, for different reasons. And therefore, we see real assets as something that you will, you know, investors should have as part of a diversified portfolio. Absolutely. Well, Marcus, that's all we've got time for. But thanks very much for, uh, uh, for, for, for talking to us about uh, giving us such a great overview of, uh, as you say, what is an important asset class for uh, many income investors. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Gavin. Goodbye.